The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Go Green Radio, brought to you by Covanta Energy. Reduce, reuse, recycle. Rethink renewable energy and energy from waste. This program will help start you thinking about how to protect our world and its important resources. Now here's the host for Go Green Radio, Jill Buck. Welcome to Go Green Radio, everybody. So glad that you could join us today. Our topic today is El Nino. And we have some scientists, engineers, and experts from FEMA and from the National Weather Service here with us today to talk about what El Nino is, why it's expected to be quite severe this year and what we can do to prepare for it um, and what our government agencies at the local, state, and federal level are doing to prepare for it. It's going to be an action-packed show. Um, and in, in layman's terms, I think we can all kind of coalesce around this idea that El Nino this year is going to be a doozy. So this is a really, really important opportunity for individuals and businesses to hear from the best possible experts about ways that you can prepare. Our first guest today is Alex Tardy, and he is the Warning Coordination Meteorologist in charge of outreach and partner coordination for the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration's Weather Service Office in San Diego. Alex, welcome to Go Green Radio. We're so glad to have you. Good morning. Thanks for having me on. Well, um, I know that many of us are aware that seasons of El Nino bring changes in weather, but what I'd like for you to do is help us understand why that's true. What exactly is El Nino, and why does it change our typical weather patterns? Sure. When we think of El Nino, typically, at least out west, the first thing that pops up in our mind is rain or too much rain. But El Nino actually has a lot of faces, and it has a lot of different impacts across the country. First off, El Nino is actually warm tropical ocean temperatures, uh, much warmer than they should be. What happens is we start seeing a change every five or six years. So El Nino is kind of normal in itself and how it occurs. This is all down near the equator in south of Hawaii. It seems so far away to affect us. But most of the energy for our weather systems come out of the tropics, whether it's a hurricane or Pacific storm. And, and what happens when El Nino develops is it literally changes our jet stream, our storm track, where we get all our weather from, and it pulls it southward from where it normally likes to be in Washington and Oregon. You've seen what's been going on in Oregon now with the jet stream being up there. It pulls it into Southern California, and that is the actual impact that we start to get from El Nino. Now, typically, it's between January and March where we see the biggest impact, but we're already seeing impact in the Northeast. There's no snow, and it's very mild, and we're seeing impact in the Pacific Northwest with the series of storms that they've been getting pounded on. So remember, El Nino has different parts and different faces, but what it really is is unusually warm ocean temperatures in the Pacific that change our weather pattern, at least change it for the course of one winter. Mm-hmm. 
Our next guest is John Hamill, and he is the External Affairs Director for FEMA Region 9. And Region 9 is those Western states, uh, that that conglomeration of Western states. Uh, John, you know, when the last very, very strong El Nino hit California, there were 32.5 million residents. And this week I just saw in the news that they reported we now have 39.1 million residents. And similarly, uh, Arizona had 4.7 million residents in 1997 when that last strong El Nino hit. And now they have 6.4 million. Nevada has added a million residents since 1997. The bottom line is there are a lot of people living in the western states that your region 9 FEMA office is responsible for that are likely to get slammed by El Nino who have never experienced that before what kind of damage can we expect well uh, you're absolutely right about the the increase in population and it's also the the increase in population in the states in, in our region is also uh, means expansion of the suburbs into previously wilder or more rural territory, which creates fire hazards and other things. So, And it also changes the, the need for the flood mapping to change because human construction and human redirection of, uh, of topography and, and uh, land use uh, puts additional strain or it makes obsolete, in some cases, previous maps. So the constantly changing landscape is one big thing. Uh, that uh, f- literally the the physical landscape, but also the the, the uh, population uh, centers and 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 the sprawl uh, puts additional infrastructure at risk, conceivably mm-hmm. for these things. So um, more people, more potential for uh, change, and not always positive change. Right. Um, um, the other th- the 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 other piece of it is that you know the historical, as you mentioned, a lot of people don't have the historical context to having. Uh, uh, experienced um, an El Nino series of events, but um, it's just long enough, 20 years ago, for most people to not remember it clearly, even if they were alive. Uh, so um, the, uh, the, the the biggest thing that we recommend in, a, in the big picture is that you should know your risk and do something about it. I mean, that's essentially, and you know your risk by consulting with your insurance folks with uh, useready.gov, and floodsmart.gov, those are two websites that FEMA sponsors that, that have tools that can actually get down to your address and what your house experiences, so uh, what risks your, 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 your home or your business is subject to. So those are, and then the, the do something about it part is uh, there's numerous things you can do, but the biggest uh, recommendation that FEMA in general and Region 9 very particularly have is that you should get flood insurance. My colleague, Edie Lohman, who's on the call, will probably give some more details on that when, when she speaks. But, um, you know, if you want to give yourself a Christmas present or start the new year off right, get and keep flood insurance. And be mindful that even in low-risk flood areas, 20% of the damage nationally, uh, annually, is done in, in what are considered low-risk areas. And mm. flooding is the largest and the most expensive natural disaster we face. So this is not an abstract. This is a, this is a concrete uh, threat, and people should take it as such. 
Absolutely. Well, let's go right into to Edie. Edie Lohman is with us. She's the FEMA Region 9 National Flood Insurance Program Specialist, um, and she's been with NFIP for 23 years. Um, got her MBA close to my house, St. Uh, Mary's College in Moraga, and so I'm very excited to have you on the show, Edie, and I know you're the guru on flood insurance, and so talk to us about how residents can go about doing that. What is the process for getting flood insurance? Jill, thank you. So uh, one of the most powerful actions that residents can take right now uh, to prepare themselves for the potential impacts of El Nino is to purchase a flood insurance policy, as John said. If there was ever a year that people were thinking about buying flood insurance, this certainly would be a good one. Uh, so property owners can purchase a national flood insurance program policy right through their local insurance agent, um, whoever their agent is that writes their uh, business uh, coverage for their business or for their house, their fire coverage, or even their auto coverage. They should go talk to that insurance agent. Uh, and time is of the essence because in most cases there's a 30-day waiting period before a flood insurance policy goes into effect. So we want to encourage people to have that conversation with their insurance agent um, as early as possible. Uh, residents can purchase up to a maximum of $250,000 of building coverage and up to $100,000 of contents coverage. Coverage is also available for uh, renters as well. Uh, one thing to keep in mind is that most standard homeowner and business owner policies uh, do not cover flood damage. And so uh, that's a big consideration. It's something a lot of people don't realize until it's too late. Uh, property owners can uh, visit our, our website at floodsmart.gov uh, or call 1-800-427-2419 to obtain some additional information on the National Flood Insurance Program, uh, look at what coverage options are available, and uh, get assistance in locating an insurance agent if they don't already have one. Um, FloodSmart.gov actually has a webpage specifically addressing um, El Nino. Wow, that's good to know. Now, quick follow-up on that. You said there is flood insurance available for renters. If you happen to be renting in a multifamily structure, like an apartment or condo or something like that, um, of course, it would be up to the landlord, I'm sure, to cover the building for, with flood insurance. What exactly would be covered for renters if they got flood insurance in a living situation like that? Right. So we have, uh, for residential renters, up to $100,000 of coverage, and that would cover all their personal effects. Okay. Um, so gotcha. essentially anything uh, that you would take with you if you moved out um, that personally belongs to you w- would be considered contents coverage. Gotcha, gotcha. Thanks, Edie. Our next guest is Bern Ruiz, and he's the federal coordination or coordinating officer of the FEMA Region 9 El Nino Task Force. Um, and I, Bern, you know, I know that you have recently you know, formed this El Nino Task Force, and I'd love for you to tell us a little bit about who's involved and what are the objectives of this El Nino Task Force for Region 9 FEMA. Yes. Uh, hi, Jill. Um, absolutely. The, um, as you know, uh, typically our most common challenges in the region range from 
earthquakes, wildfires, droughts, hurricanes, and other storms that cause flooding and landslide. Uh, when combined with the projections of a strong El Nino season this winter, something probably more in the neighborhood of what happened 20 years ago in 97 and 98 winter, well, these hazards prompted us to create an El Nino task force last September. And uh, we were given a mission to concentrate our efforts on preparing Region 9 and its federal, state, local, tribal, and community partners for the impact of El Nino. Uh, the task force itself, it consisted of uh, subject matter experts from the FEMA Region 9 office, as well as representatives from the whole community partner organizations. That's uh, uh, state emergency offices, uh, also state agencies that deal with water, power, highways, law enforcement. We had tribal liaisons within our task force and also private sector liaisons. We started small, but it quickly grew in size to over 100. And um, given that mission set and given that uh, wide range of uh, disciplines, disciplines within the task force, uh, we set out on uh, four, with four objectives. One was to develop decision support tools uh, to aid emergency managers in gathering uh, information to help make informed decisions uh, as disaster looms. These tools define the trigger points for making those critical and timely decisions. Uh, we also set out to examine areas that are vulnerable uh, to the potential impact of El Nino. Uh, these included, uh, as John mentioned, population centers, especially in the metropolitan areas, San Francisco, San Diego, L.A., and the likes, uh, critical infrastructures, uh, wastewater and, and water facilities, uh, transportation networks, communication grids, and things like that we looked f uh, for vulnerabilities. Um, next, recognizing that there are response plans at every level in the whole community, we sought out to identify what issues, gaps, and shortfalls exist within those plans and who can fill those gaps. And lastly, of course, uh, we developed key messages to help encourage the whole community, citizens, uh, to plan and prepare. That's terrific, Bern. And it's so great to know that so many different entities and uh, touch points for the community are involved in this task force. I mean, it's really comprehensive in terms of who's involved. Uh, we've got to take a quick break, but when we come back, we'll have much more on El Nino uh, this winter and what you can do to prepare. So don't go away, folks. There's more Go Green Radio right after this. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. Take a wild guess. How much garbage generated in the United States today is converted into energy? Is it 26%? 43%? Or 14%? Working here and around the world to produce a reliable supply of clean, green energy, Covanta Energy works with communities to turn household trash into energy. Oh yeah, that question I asked earlier? Today, only 14% of U.S. garbage is converted to energy. Just 14%. Covanta alone processes half of that municipal solid waste into renewable energy for a cleaner world. For more information about Covanta Energy, visit us today at www.covantaenergy.com. 
Up Close with Chris Tinney is now on Voice America Variety. Every Tuesday at 5 p.m. Pacific, 8 p.m. Eastern, Chris brings you the thought leaders, activists, and socially responsible entrepreneurs taking action for the environment, doing business in a new way, and helping the underprivileged. Call in or listen in every Tuesday at 5 p.m. Pacific, 8 p.m. Eastern, and learn how the small decisions you make today have a big impact on our small planet in the future. Tune in to Up Close with Chris Tinney on the Voice America Variety Channel. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Jill would love to hear your comments or questions on today's show, so call us toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Write to us, too. Save some trees and send us an email to gogreenradio at gmail.com. That's gogreenradio at gmail.com. Now back to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Welcome back to Go Green Radio. So glad that you could join us today. If you're just tuning in, let me catch you up. Today we're talking about El Nino. We're talking about being prepared, knowing what's coming as best we can. And we've got a superstar panel of experts from FEMA and the National Weather Service here to help us understand what we can do. Um, Our next guest in our lineup is Robert McCord. He's the FEMA Region 9 Hazard Mitigation Branch Chief, and he's responsible for three mitigation grant programs. And Robert, you know, I'd love for you to tell us a little bit. Your programs provide states, territories, tribal, and local governments grant funds to reduce the impacts from future natural hazard events. Give us some examples of some communities that have used your grants to get ready for El Nino and some of the projects that they have undertaken. Certainly, Jill. Thanks for the opportunity. Um, Over the last 20 or so years, our office has awarded over, put out on the street, over $180 million, and we have another $24 million in the works, specifically for flood hazard reduction projects for our three mainland states in California, Arizona, and Nevada, as you mentioned earlier. Um, Just this week, we awarded approximately $1 million to Lake County, California, for multiple culvert upgrades as they um, try to address the expected increased runoff from El Nino. Uh, El Nino rains over uh, recently um, a wildfire burn area. Mm -hmm. And then also uh, coming up very soon, we hope to award uh, a large project in Calaveras County to protect a water treatment plant from increased El Nino rains in another uh, burn area. Uh, So those are some of the recent things some of the more typical projects that we uh, fund would be residential elevations in flood-prone areas, um, upgrading pump stations in low-lying areas. Uh, we do erosion control along stream banks. Um, we've done flood diversion uh, around wastewater treatment plants and other critical facilities. And we do quite a few of uh, storm drainage improvements um, across our area as well as detention basins. Mm-hmm. 
I've got a quick follow on for you, Robert. You know, you mentioned the water treatment plant and f- flood mitigation around those in the Calaveras project that may be coming up. And, you know, just, I don't know, a month, two months, something like that ago when there was such flooding in South Carolina that despite all these floodwaters, people were having trouble getting clean drinking water and flushing the toilet um, because of the impact of the flooding on their water treatment plant. But I don't think people understand that dynamic, like how that happens, why more water or floods can actually uh, create a water crisis, a freshwater crisis in an area. Can you explain that to us real quick? Well, I can uh, speak just very lightly on the project I mentioned in Calaveras County. Because Mm -hmm. the water treatment plant is so near the burn area, um, the increased runoff and debris that will flow down... um, the water treatment plant just cannot handle that much debris and cannot filter out that uh-huh. much of just the natural um, the natural chemicals that are there in in that area. Mm-hmm. So our project would be to um, protect against that debris and allow them to be able to continue filtering the water to provide service because if they get overloaded, either they legally would have to stop providing water for a time being, or they could have severe damage due to the increased mm-hmm. runoff. That makes perfect sense. Thanks for that, Robert. Now we're going to go back to Alex Tardy with the NOAA National Weather Service uh, out of San Diego. Alex, talk to us in specifics about how this year's El Nino is expected to compare to previous ones. How, how big is this and, and what do you expect? Okay, yeah, we've been following El Nino. We follow it every year, but this particular El Nino has formed in April and May and then really took off over the summer. Again, we're talking about equatorial Pacific Ocean, sea surface temperatures, and how they depart from about a 30-year average of normal. So literally, we're displacing very warm water that's typically in the western Pacific and moving it into the eastern Pacific. And that results in the big change to our weather pattern um, through the winter and even a little bit in the summer. Now, this particular El Nino is currently... We take samples of it with buoys and satellites. Uh, it's currently the strongest one we've ever seen. It's been at a level of about 3 Celsius, or about 5.5 Fahrenheit, for about the past four to five weeks. Um, we can't declare it as the strongest ever because we, we need to wait for an average of about three months, to be fair. But currently, at least over the past four weeks, this El Nino has already exceeded the values that we saw with 1997-98. It is important to remember, though, that you know just because this is the most powerful El Nino in the ocean right now doesn't guarantee the exact same impacts uh, like 97-98 or 82-83. Each one's a little bit different than the other, and we're starting to see those impacts, like I mentioned, with the Pacific Northwest and with the warm very warm weather, uh, the lack of Arctic air in the northern plains and the northeast. So this particular El Nino um, fits into a lot of the extremes we've seen in the past several years. Worst drought ever for California, states missing about 27 inches of rain in the past four years. The warmest year on record for a lot of places, including California. Um, And we've seen water levels here in San Diego over Thanksgiving that reached their highest level ever in La Jolla, where there's a tide gauge. We're seeing a lot of extremes, um, and 
you know, this drought and this magnitude of El Nino, things are only going to get a little more complicated as we go through this winter and into next year because we still may have residual drought and we still uh, may have some shortages. Meanwhile, places in California will have received too much of a good thing or, or too much rainfall. Um, good news is that our temperatures won't be as warm because of the clouds and rain, at least for the West. And the other good news is we will be developing snowpack, but it just may not be enough snowpack because we're short so much precipitation. About two seasons of precipitation out of the past four, we are short. So we we have a long ways to go uh, before we talk about drought ending. But in the meantime, this El Nino has more potential than we've seen um, any other El Nino in terms of how much energy is in the ocean. Mm-hmm. Well, and that's something that everybody in California especially wants to know, and everybody who enjoys California produce and the rest of the nation wants to know is, you know, will the drought be over? One of my neighbors was spray painting his lawn green last week, and he was hoping that El Nino would uh, allow him to grow a lawn again next year. So um, it sounds like we'll just have to wait and see, and we are so far behind that um, one season of El Nino probably won't do the trick. Is that accurate to say? That's accurate to say. I mean, we have had some El Ninos like 1977-78 that were drought busters, but not all El Ninos are the same, and our source of water in the Colorado and in Northern California, those areas are key, and they don't have the best relationship with El Nino in terms of having much above normal precipitation. The best relationship typically is central Southern California, Texas, and Florida along the southern states. So, that's why it gets very complicated, and um, there's a lot of research going on into why the West sometimes gets these really big storms, some of our historical storms, and it's important with El Nino to not think a 100-year, 500-year storm, per se, mm-hmm. historical. El Nino gives us a lot of storms and a cumulative impact, but there's a lot of research going on to figure out, and this has impacts on drought, too, why does the West get these few storms like 1993, like 1986, a few storms that are just tremendously powerful and deliver so much water to the region, and in most cases too much water, and those don't always occur in El Nino years. So a lot of research going on for long-term water supply. The, the consensus is that extreme weather, drought, too much rain, things like that, warmth and, and too much cold, that is going to be more the flavor uh, of the near future. And El Nino in itself has nothing to do with global warming, per se, but our oceans right now, the Pacific Ocean, is at a warmest level, not just in the El Nino region, but the whole Pacific Ocean is at the warmest level we've seen uh, ever for modern records. So when you mentioned the landscaping. What I did to my yard was I removed the grass. Uh, mm-hmm. I'm in a semi-arid climate. I have extreme weather historically, and that's probably in the future, too. So I dryscaped it. It looks wonderful, but um, it is nice to have real grass, but that's what parks are also good for. Absolutely. I couldn't agree with you more. Bern, the next question is for you. I know that on December 9th, the FEMA Region 9 office uh, participated in a rehearsal of concept exercise with its disaster response partners to exercise the response plan and its flood decision support tools. How did that go? What did you learn from that exercise? Uh, Yeah, thanks, Jill. Um, 
Yeah, last week we uh, exercised a response plan. Uh, officially, we called it the El Nino Preparedness Executive Decision Support Guide. Uh, at that drill, uh, at the rehearsal concept drill, this was a six-hour tabletop exercise that was held at the California Office of Emergency Services in Sacramento. Uh, going in, we invited uh, key emergency managers from the whole community uh, and Judging from the participation, there was tremendous interest and commitment. Uh, more than 100 participants from our federal, state, local, and tribal and private sector partners uh, were present in auditorium, and another 80 participated virtually uh, to Adobe Connect. Uh, we also had federal agencies uh, represented, uh, uh, as well as states of uh, California, Nevada, and Arizona's uh, Office of Emergency Management. Tribal governments and state agencies also took part in engaged discussions. Uh, recognizing that uh, the response plan that we published uh, is a living document, our exercise objective was to put that plan through a stress test in this uh, collaborative event. And this is our way of identifying issues, gaps, and shortfalls uh, that we will then incorporate to make the plan better and enhance it. Um, we sought to understand what plans are in place that will trigger preparedness actions during the exercise. Uh, what are the challenges of coordinating support, and what are the anticipated gaps in those plans, and who can fill them? That's the most important thing. Um, uh, we gained many invaluable insights uh, from the exercise. Um, I'll give you some top, uh, the top three. Uh, one of them deals with uh, operationalizing or understanding the weather threat. Uh, one of the key lessons uh, recognize, uh, recognizes the uh, huge advances we've made recently in leveraging the scientific community for that weather information. It comes from many sources. The task, our task now is to work with our partners uh, at the uh, National Weather Service to take weather products to the next level and provide a composite picture of what, what the weather threat to the whole community might be to help inform operational decisions at all levels. Uh, the next one, uh, we had a great deal of discussions on uh, rapid response. As you know, our administrator up in Washington, Craig Fugate, has this mantra of go big, go fast, go smart, mm -hmm. and stabilize the incident. Well, uh, in the area of mobilizing resources to the effective areas in a disaster, we intend to focus attention and prepositioning assets in pre-designated staging areas throughout the region. Uh, this seeks to enhance our responsiveness, and our overall goal is to anticipate the needs and stay in front of a developing event. Bottom mm -hmm. line is we can't be late. Right. And uh, the, the last thing that I want to share is um, a lesson about our evacuation plans. We're anticipating a large number of citizens that may need to be evacuated from flooded areas. Twenty years ago, there were as many as 100,000 citizens mm -hmm. that were uh, displaced and had to be evacuated. Over half of those stayed in shelters. So we're taking another hard look at our mass care plans, and those plans include sheltering, uh, transportation networks for evacuation routes, food, water, and uh, and especially how well or how we could broadcast emergency information to our mm -hmm. citizens. Overall, we were pleased with the success of the exercise, but uh, all told, we got more work to do. Sure. A quick question, a quick follow-up. Do you guys anticipate using schools for shelters uh, and evacuation um, times? Uh, 
In most cases, that depends on the local governments and state mm-hmm. governments' uh, evacuation plans and sheltering plans, and certainly our partners in American Red Cross have, have a plan resourcing uh, those facilities. But uh, yes, in most gotcha. cases, we will use those facilities. Yeah, gotcha. Well, thanks, Bern. We're going to take a quick break, but when we come back, we're going to dig into the nitty-gritty about what families and neighborhoods can be doing to prepare for El Nino. So don't go away, folks. There's more Go Green Radio right after this. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. Take a wild guess. How much garbage generated in the United States today is converted into energy? Is it 26%? 43%? Or 14%? Working here and around the world to produce a reliable supply of clean, green energy, Covanta Energy works with communities to turn household trash into energy. Oh yeah, that question I asked earlier? Today, only 14% of U.S. garbage is converted to energy. Just 14%. Covanta alone processes half of that municipal solid waste into renewable energy for a cleaner world. For more information about Covanta Energy, visit us today at www.covantaenergy.com. Do the adventures of Indiana Jones leave you curious about this exotic and unusual profession? If so, don't miss Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. You'll learn about forensics, ancient civilizations, and human origins. Listen to Dr. Schuldenrein and colleagues discuss their excavations and related archaeological topics, ranging from the unique to the sublime, and yes, even the mundane. Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology, live Wednesday, 6 p.m. Eastern, 3 p.m. Pacific Time, on Voice America Variety. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in your brain inspired really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com You're listening to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Jill would love to hear your comments or questions on today's show, so call us toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Write to us, too. Save some trees and send us an email to gogreenradio at gmail.com. That's gogreenradio at gmail.com. Now back to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Welcome back to Go Green Radio. John Hamill, I'm going to go to you uh, with FEMA Region 9. You know, we know that based on what Byrne just told us about the preparations that are in place with so many uh, local, state, federal government agencies and other organizations coming together to do this rehearsal of concept exercise on disaster response. Um, We know that government officials will work as hard as they can to keep us safe, but there's no substitute for individual readiness and preparation. So talk to us about some things that families and even neighborhoods could be doing to prepare for El Nino. Yeah, I mean, that that is absolutely correct. I mean, the, 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 the only way that an informed and uh, effective response is, is, is takes place is if there's preparation ahead of time. And let's face it, um, and that's for all hazards, not just El Nino. At, you know, at FEMA, we certainly recommend, uh, uh, strongly recommend that people have a, a communications plan. Where are they going to meet? 
what time, what place, if they're displaced, if they can't get home, if children are coming from school, that sort of um, uh, information and, and, and rehearsal of that information is, is critical. Um, you know, some of the smaller things we suggest, you know, you create group texts. Texts seem to work. They're the most robust form of communication general, oftentimes when, um, when there is a disaster. That works when a lot of other things don't work. So have mm-hmm. that as a, as, a, as a tool for yourself. The other thing is your vital documents. I'm sure Edie could elaborate on that, but in our increasingly digital age, it's an opportunity to, you know, we suggest people, of course, keep their vital papers and so on in a, in a waterproof container of some sort. But more, equally important is to get all of your uh, important uh, documents and put them on a thumb drive, scan them, and send them to your sister in Chicago or wherever. Get some... Uh, uh, of your vital records, the copies of your vital records stored somewhere outside of the area where you live, uh, because no use giving them to your neighbor across the street if he's going to be flooded. Too. So those are a couple <laughs> of <laughs> smaller uh, things. But basically, it's have a plan and have resources in the house. You need water. You need food. Um, you need uh, a, a radio that doesn't require uh, batteries or electricity. Um, if you can, if if possible, they're fairly inexpensive. You have to build a kit. You have to be prepared to do at least 72 hours on your own for any disaster, for any hazard. Uh, but in El Nino, we'll stress that because clearly when you have localized flooding, um, transportation becomes difficult. And so the commodities that you would normally uh, expect to be, you know, uh, available may not be. And, and three days is conservative. I mean, in my, my opinion, seven days is stronger. And I think a lot of the folks on this call would, would agree with that who have been out to disasters. Um, mm-hmm. So those are those are some of the things that can be done. T- uh, communities, though, again, it's know your risk. Uh, communities that are engaged in, in national flood insurance, for instance, as a as a community, get get uh, reduced rates or, or more favorable rates. And uh, again, Edie could speak to that. But also the community emergency response teams, the CERT teams, which are volunteers, your next door neighbor. The first line of defense in any disaster is generally even before first responders, police, fire, etc are able to respond is the next-door neighbor or the, the person across the street. If you have that group um, in, in trained by the state of California, which FEMA in turn uh, pays for, or, or any state, um, you, you can train locally to be in a CERT team, which gives you a feeling of empowerment and a reality of empowerment to actually make a difference on your street, your block, your neighborhood. And this is sometimes organized through social groups, or houses of worship, and so on. So, you know, government is big. It's got the big muscles, but they're not as fast to get to where things are needed specifically as, the, as, you, as your own friends and family who are nearby. So those are the, you know, you have to think, we have to think on a broad scale. And, but as we know, like politics, all disasters are local. So the, the more resources and information, information is power. Um, more information that you have about your own risk, and uh, and have local community-based groups that can respond to that risk. Um, the the more likely it is that you'll have uh, a, re- uh, a built-in resilience that'll allow people to get back to work and back to school and back into their homes faster than they would otherwise. Hmm. Well, and I like what you said about you know a kit for seventy-two hours to seven days. I mean, I watch. I I live near a. 
a grocery store, major grocery share chain, and the trucks are coming in every day. If the trucks couldn't make it through um, because of flooding or other infrastructure damage, even the grocery stores, even if you could walk to them, if you couldn't drive, um, you know, they're going to be depleted, you know, at some point as well. So it is a great idea. And also the point you brought up before about, you know, the abundance of water makes the water unsafe to drink. So, you know, mm-hmm. those are, those are considerations, um, that people have to have in their, in their own control, in their own home or in their car or someplace readily accessible to uh, be able to take care of yourself before you can help anybody else. And I will honestly say, as the host of Go Green Radio and a big advocate for, you know, not using plastic water containers or you know beverage containers this would be the one instance where i think it's a great idea yeah, to I, have think you get a bottle <laughs> I make an exception when it comes to disaster prep so Edie, uh john was talking about several things that you could help us with um you know this, this idea of community favorable rates on flood insurance and whatnot uh pick up where he left off and help us understand what he was what he was talking about when he was pitching those um questions to you right so i uh d- as John mentioned, um, from the flood insurance standpoint, there's two things that people can, two actions that they can take that will really be beneficial. One is to talk to their insurance agent if they already have flood insurance, make sure they have enough coverage, go over uh, uh, their what it covers, um, and if they don't have uh, coverage, they should ask about uh, getting coverage, including for businesses. Uh, mm-hmm. Because we do offer flood insurance for uh, business up to five hundred thousand on the building and up to five hundred thousand on contents, um, and it's important for businesses to make sure that uh, they have proper insurance as well in order to expedite a speedy recovery in the event of a of a flooding um, uh, of a flooding event. Uh, but the second thing people should do is. Um, they should prepare lists and documentation of uh, whether it's a business or a residence. They should take an inventory of what they have. Um, you know, they should write down uh, date and make and model um, uh, of items, how old they are, basic descriptions, um, keep... Uh, Keep uh, inventory of if they have receipts. Keep those available and mm-hmm. in a place that, that are easily accessible. Uh, a lot of people, even though uh, it's an easy thing to do, don't think about taking photos or videos um, room to room. Uh, we always suggest that folks do that. And uh, again, I want to emphasize, as, as John mentioned, uh, put these things in a safe place um, or send them to a relative out of state or someplace where they can be accessed uh, that you don't have to worry if, uh, if, they get, if your house gets damaged and your house or your business isn't accessible. Mm-hmm. Um, so those are to the cloud. That's what I would say. You know, I mean, if you've got digital files, scanned documents, uh, videos of your possessions, uh, you know, buy a little space in the cloud, whether it's iCloud or whatever. There's so many different Google Drive, many different ways to do it. Um, but get it out there where you can access it on any computer uh, after a disaster. Absolutely. 
Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, I have a couple minutes before we're going to go to break. And Robert, I kind of wanted to go back to you because, you know, even though El Nino isn't necessarily a climate change you know, related situation, you have a hazard mitigation program that actually will help communities institute climate resiliency projects. And I'd like to hear about what types of projects qualify for those funds. Well, sure, Jill. Um, FEMA has been enhancing our mitigation program so that we can better assist communities as they, you know, work to uh, address the impacts of climate change. Um, we've taken an active role in supporting some of the community-based resilience efforts by promoting mitigation projects that protect critical infrastructure and other resources. Uh, specifically, we've been encouraging communities to uh, use flood-resistant design and construction when they uh, build new infrastructure, um, encouraging them to maintain the natural and beneficial functions of floodplains, and then to really engage in mitigation planning to develop real mitigation strategies that build community resilience and that incorporate climate change impacts. And then one of the other things is um, encouraging communities to utilize green infrastructure methodologies in their mitigation projects. You know, this provides a framework for implementing flood hazard reduction and drought mitigation actions in a way that also incorporates other ecosystem benefits like air and water quality, habitat restoration, uh, recreation use, and it helps build a community's resilience to um, the impacts of climate change. Some of those specific projects uh, would be aquifer storage and recharge. This is a new one for us, so we're still uh, figuring out how we work together in that process. Um, Flood diversion and storage uh, and floodplain and wetland restoration. And historically, to address, you know, uh, the flooding risk, uh, we would fund projects that attempt to move the water away from a community as quickly as possible without causing, you know, further risk downstream. But these types of projects that look at, um, use the green infrastructure methodology and that look more at some of the climate change impacts, uh, look to hold that water in a safe way so that it reduces um, the flood risk when there are ex- excess rains, such as El Nino or mm-hmm. increased uh, climate impacts, and then use that in a ben- another beneficial way, um, specifically could be used to uh, mitigate drought um, or provide some of those other benefits like air and water quality. Yeah, I think that's fantastic that FEMA has that program. Um, This is the first, actually, that I've heard of it, and um, I think that's terrific. We've got to take a quick break, but when we come back, we'll be finishing up with our guests with some great advice for everyone out there and some great information on El Nino. So don't go away, folks. There's more Go Green Radio right after this. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Take a wild guess. How much garbage generated in the United States today is converted into energy? Is it 26%, 43%, or 14%? 
Working here and around the world to produce a reliable supply of clean, green energy, Covanta Energy works with communities to turn household trash into energy. Oh yeah, that question I asked earlier? Today, only 14% of U.S. garbage is converted to energy. Just 14%. Covanta alone processes half of that municipal solid waste into renewable energy for a cleaner world. For more information about Covanta Energy, visit us today at www.covantaenergy.com. Conservation starts with us. Learn about environmental concerns each week when you tune in to Our Wild World with host Ellie Weiss. Our show centers on Africa each week and what's being done to save our wildlife, ecology, and ourselves. However, we'll also discuss what's going on closer to home. And most importantly, we'll let you know what can be done in our own backyards by featuring guest experts and featuring your questions and answers. Listen every Monday morning at 8 a.m. Pacific Time, 11 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. You're listening to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Jill would love to hear your comments or questions on today's show, so call us toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Write to us, too. Save some trees and send us an email to gogreenradio at gmail.com. That's gogreenradio at gmail.com. Now back to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Welcome back to Go Green Radio, folks. Thanks for tuning in. This is a very important topic we're discussing. El Nino is going to be a whopper this year. And so it's really important for everyone to get prepared, to know what's coming, and use the resources that our tax dollars have already paid for. If you get out on uh, noaa.gov, N-O-A-A.gov, or FEMA.gov, you can find some incredibly helpful resources um, that will get you and your family and your neighborhood prepared for this incredible event. Now, Bernd, you were talking about how, you know, you coordinate executive level communication at the federal, state, and local level um, when there is a disaster, when there's recovery and response that is needed. You've done this for a lot of different types of disasters. How exactly, help our listeners understand how that coordination happens. I mean, is everybody on a group text? How do you ensure that, like, power outages and whatnot, um, and other communication breakdowns don't hinder the coordination effects of the local agencies and federal agencies we're counting on. Yeah, absolutely. This is uh, important to know that uh, throughout the year, we have a series of exercises with the emergency management uh, community and all of our partners from all government levels. So we all get together periodically throughout the year to exercise these coordination relationships. Uh, but in an event like an El Nino storm, uh, coordination can um, begin ideally as early as uh, five days before things go really um, terribly wrong. Uh, the threat of flooding is elevated so that we begin to start talking to the uh, to the state emergency operations center that's affected, and then we begin those coordination, understanding what the damage are looking like, so they get reported. Uh, I want I want to say that readiness and pre-declaration activities are very important. Uh, they're critical in ensuring our effective disaster uh, management of emergency response and recovery, and it gets us out in front of an impending crisis. 
recent legislative advances, such as the Post-Katrina Emergency Management Reform Act, uh, for example, have made it legally possible for uh, FEMA to do more in advance of a disaster, prepositioning emergency resources, uh, deploying uh, re- regional IMAT teams, and that's an incident management assistance team to the state emergency operations center. They serve as liaisons and to provide technical assistance. But uh, again, our authority to respond with uh, the, the full complement of federal assistance is derived in what's called the Stafford Act, uh, which uh, gave the federal government a lot of power and authority and resources to help communities uh, uh, respond to their citizens' needs and now transition to recover. So upon a presidential disaster de- declarations, folks like me, federal coordinating officers, are deployed as designated representatives of the FEMA administrator to manage that disaster response. Um, How that happens is enabled through what we call the incident command system. For four and a half decades, we've been evolving this system, which is uh, a standardized approach to command and control and coordinate emergency response that helps to integrate intergovernmental and interagency response. So uh, it gets us all on the same sheet of music, and that's what the beauty of it is. So Mm -hmm. as an FCO, my initial action is to meet with the governor's authorized representatives and a state coordinating officer, my counterpart, to assess the damage and understand the extent. We establish what's called a unified coordinating group, which consists of high-level emergency managers across the whole community uh, that we share an understanding of the priorities. And we're operating under a set of single set of joint objectives. We establish a base of operation called the Joint Field Office, where you might find representatives from Red Cross, uh, Small Business Administration, USDA, Department of Defense, uh, Corps of Engineers, Search and Rescue, those kinds of folks to help manage that initial response. Now, much of the coordination, uh, you mentioned power outage and communications outages, and the initial response, most of that coordination uh, is done face-to-face because we rely on FEMA's, uh, we, we have some limited capability in the mobile emergency response support, or MERS. They have assets to provide us limited satellite, cellular, and wireless communications to keep mm-hmm. responders connected. Now, concurrently, we count on our private sector partners, power and utility and water companies, uh, service providers, uh, as far as lead retailers, big box stores, grocers, uh, who are working diligently to rapidly restore those disrupted services. And as services mm-hmm. come back up, uh, we, we we make best use of available information technology for uh, coordination. Mm-hmm. Well, it sounds like you've got multiple layers built in, and that's always a good thing. Um, nothing like, you know, a little bit of duplicity of services to make sure that if one fails, another can pick up. So um, that's fantastic. Alex, during the break, you were mentioning something called Weather Ready Nation, and I'd like for you to give us a, um, a look at what that is all about. Yeah, we talked about a lot of nice tips about looking into flood insurance and things you can do, backing up information. There's a lot of little things you can do as well, um, you know, like cleaning out your gutters and knowing where to get sandbags and clearing out drains uh, around the neighborhood so one flood doesn't become someone else's problem or back up. But when it comes to education and promoting preparedness and just being more aware of your weather hazards, your natural hazards, such as El Nino and, and promoting that, you know, El Nino is a series of storms and not one event, we have a program at NOAA called uh, Weather Ready Nation, and anyone can be involved with it. 
uh, this radio station. It can be a private organization, government organization. And all it is is pledging that you're promoting weather safety, weather preparedness, and weather-related education. Because um, it's really important, not just with El Nino, but with climate change and climate variability, that we understand the science and that we know the limitations and that we know what we can do to help uh, be better prepared as a nation as a whole uh, when it comes to these disasters. And we've seen a lot of disasters, and there's really no reason um, to not expect more disasters in the future when it comes to these weather-related. So Weather Ready Nation, and a part of that, you know, there's a lot of programs like When Flooded, Turn Around, Don't Drown, programs that are promoting people to think about it year-round and not just when it's occurring. Mm-hmm. And I think that's critical. I mean, it, you can be much more calm, you can be much more rational when you've actually thought through some of these scenarios in advance, maybe even done a practice run. It's kind of like, uh, you know, when we practice fire drills and whatnot in schools, um, you know, you can just almost go into muscle memory that I've practiced this, I can stay calm, I can think through this uh, because I have a plan. And I think that's incredibly important. Uh, just to remind all of our listeners, you can get more information on this. You can get some checklists and, and whatnot on two different websites. You can get on NOAA, N-O-A-A.gov, and FEMA. Dot gov fema.gov and there you can find out much more information in depth about what we've touched on today. I want to thank our guests for joining us and helping us understand this very crucial topic and I want to thank our listeners for being with us as well. We're going to be here same time, same place with more Go Green Radio and in next week and so until then have a wonderful week and do something in your life to go green. Did you get some terrific ideas from today's show? Please join us for more next Friday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time, noon Eastern Time. It's Go Green Radio with Jill Buck here on Voice America. Go Green Radio is proudly sponsored by Covanta Energy, a leader in providing renewable energy solutions for a cleaner world. Visit www.covantaenergy.com for more information. We'll see you here next week.